يا حسين 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 يا حسين 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 يا حسين 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 يا حسين 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 أنت إمامي إليك انتمائي منك قريب في كربلائي في كربلائي أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله الذي لا يبلغ مدحته القائلون ولا يحصي نعماءه العدون ولا يؤدي حقه المجتحدون الذي لا يدركه بعد الحمم ولا يناله غوص الفطن ثم الصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين حبيب قلوبنا وطبيب نفوسنا وشفيع ذنوبنا سيدنا ومولانا أبي القاسم محمد صل على محمد وعلى بيته الطيبين الطاهرين المعصومين المظلومين لا سيما بقية الله في الأرضين صاحب العصر والزمان خليفة الرحمن إمام الإنس والجان ولعن الله وعداهم جمعين إلى يوم الدين أما بعد فقد قال الله وقوله الحق بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ظهر الفساد في البر والبحر بما كسبت أيدي الناس ليضيقهم بعض الذي عملوه لعلهم يرجعون صدق الله العلي العظيم The Islamic perspective on minimalism has been our ongoing topic. Tonight is lecture number eight. Alhamdulillah, we are on a, a journey together, you and I, and our flight is now in the air. We're two days away from the day of Ashura. So we are slowly but surely approaching our destination. Up until now, all of you have been very patient with me, and may Allah bless you for your service and accept your gham abali Muhammad, insha'Allah. And we have attempted to discuss this topic of minimalism in a consumer-based era that we live in. Discussions that have started all the way back now, which seems years ago really, about worldview and about saadat and contentment, about individualism. In the past two discussions, part one and part two, were very, very important. We talked about controlling of those desires that are destructive for us. And last night we talked about the dunya. We made a very important distinction between <clears throat> achievement and attachment. And hopefully, inshallah, that is somewhat clear to all of you. Of course, that topic alone requires our entire ashra. But enough for us to get the ball rolling was last night. Tonight, I want to make a connection between a life of minimalism and our 12th Imam. Because the reality is that if we don't have at least one discussion in the first 10 days about the Imam of our time, we've done him a grave injustice. Everything we do, every act of worship that we do, 
while there are many niyat behind it, many intentions behind it, one of them I think and I believe inside of my heart is to get closer to the 12th Imam. Now I know, I understand in discussions with my youth across the past week or so, eight days, I know there's a lot of questions about Imam Zamana. And there should be. And if it was my topic, I would expand that topic across 10, 11 nights. It's not my topic. And there are questions about his ghaybat and why, was, why is he ghaib and how do you want me to get close to an imam who's not accessible and his arrival and his zuhur and life after his zuhur, etc, etc. What's my role in that? And these are really important questions, but outside the scope of our discussion. But there is a direct link between the life that I'm asking all of us to live and the arrival of our 12th Imam. Before we get into a little bit of the ayat and the traditions that are related to our topic, a few base building discussions that I like to have in the opening of every night to kind of build the base properly. What is it that we're waiting for? And sometimes the misconception is that we use certain words that we have heard for a very long time and we think we have the understanding of that meaning of the word. When in reality, sometimes it's that word that has caused a little bit of confusion. The word is zuhur. And sometimes I think people like me believe that zuhur means the arrival of the imam or the reappearance of the imam. To the point where we're kind of waiting for this bang. Okay? This unveiling, if you'll have it. You know, if I can kind of, you know, put a picture behind it, you know, the, 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 the curtain will part or the curtain will lift and out will walk the Imam of our time. And we're waiting for that moment. So every preparation, any idea, wa'ajil, farajil, everything comes, back, comes down to this one display or this arrival of the Imam, thinking that's what zuhur means. Let's first examine what zuhur means according to the Qur'an itself. And then understand what exactly are we waiting for and are we ready for that or not. Surah Tawbah, verse number 33, a very famous verse, talks about the prevailing of the deen of Islam. Very famous verse. That says that he is the one who has sent the Prophet, his Rasul, Rasulahu, his Rasul, Bil Huda with guidance, and Deen al Haq. This truthful Deen. That Deen al Haq itself is an Ashra. Why? Again, the Dahara verb, meaning from Zuhur, or Zuhur is taken from that Mastar, from that root verb. If you look at the English translation, it doesn't mean that. Allah has sent this prophet with this guidance and this deen to kind of, you know, unveil the deen of Islam or present the deen of Islam. No, the actual translation is a very good one. It says that this deen of Islam will do what? Will prevail over ala kulli, over every other deen. Will prevail over everything else. Will come and conquer every other deen will come and surpass every other deen. So in the Quranic verse, in this specific verse of Surah Tawbah, verse number 33, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, the zuhur of the deen of Islam is the prevailing of the deen of Islam. 
If you apply that definition to the zuhur of Imam al-Zamana, this is not just the unveiling of the Imam. This is the prevailing of the message of the Imam. The message of the Imam that he's going to bring, the deen that he's going to bring, the system of wilayat that he's going to bring will prevail over anything else today. No matter how powerful you may think that system is. And so if we are waiting for the prevailing of that system, that system must already prevail inside of us. Understand the logic, please. We believe in an active intadhar of our imam, not a passive intadhar of our imam. Anybody who ever tells you, and I don't think there's anybody out there who would say, to sit in the corner, read your tasbih, wa'ajjil farajahum, inshallah the imam will come actively going out and trying to, you know, establish the grounds for his arrival, is there's no point. He will come, you'll be better, everything will be fine. And I wish it were that simple. It won't be that simple, I'm sorry. If we know and we do know what the Imam will come and establish, what his constitution will be, what his government will look like, then obviously for us, to prepare for his arrival, we must begin to include those elements inside our individual and communal lives. Very simple example, right? We know that the government of the Imam, its constitution will be the Quran. And I told Jawadi Amali, may Allah protect him, he says, if that's the case, if we know that, and for sure we know that, then if we wish to be one of those who are the muntadharin of this Imam, we must make that same Quran our constitution. Such that when the Imam comes and attempts to establish a Quranic-based government, it's a seamless transition from your government to his. Same idea, if we know that the deen of Islam that he will come and present will prevail over every other government, then that deen of the Imams must prevail inside of me before he arrives. Not when he arrives, not after he arrives. Now, a lot of you ask me questions, and they're great questions. Like I said, I love these questions that you have heard from the traditions of the ulama and in the books that when the imam will come, the imam will come and bring a deen, quote-unquote, that won't be recognized by us. And it's a true, absolute sahih tradition. And so the, the, the natural question is that, wait a second now, is he not going to bring Islam? Of course he'll bring Islam. But the problem is that people like me have watered down the deen so much that my deen and the imam's deen are two different things now. So when he will come and bring the complete system of the deen, for me, it won't be recognizable. It's, that's not what I've been living, that's not what I've been told, it's not what I've learned. And so yes, naturally we have to go back to the drawing board and that's what really this usher is all about, to go back and hit the reset button, restart our life and say, okay, what am I doing? Where am I going? How am I consuming? What am I possessing? All that with the hopes that maybe I can mirror my life around that of the Imam. Remember, we're not waiting for the arrival of the Imam, we're waiting for life under the Imam. And there's a big difference. Life under the Imam is a different life altogether. I'll present that in, 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 you know, later on. 
But this entire life of minimalism that I've been really hammering down on all of you is really a glimpse, an intro, a preview of the life under the Imam as well. Imam Hussein alayhi salatu wassalam. He refers to the deen of Islam before the arrival of the Mahdi by using a glass of water. And I mentioned this before. He says when, you know, the example is a very beautiful one, a very simple one for my youth to understand as well. That when the, you know, when that, when that moment of Ghadir happened, when the deen was kamil and perfected, the glass of water was full with pure, delicious, clean water. Over time, the water left the glass. He says the deen that will be left behind before the arrival of the Mahdi is like that glass of water where the water has been emptied and there's drops of, of, of water in that glass such that somebody could say that there was once water in this glass. And those drops, little drops of water inside the glass is what the deen will be lowered down to, watered down to literally. Now someone comes and brings a full glass of water, we can't recognize that. And that's happening today, is it not? So many questions I have, debates I have with youngsters, with youth, with, 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 with academics who try to convince me that if the Sharia came down in 2019, it would look nothing like the Sharia 1400 years ago. I don't think Allah would make hijab wajib on me in 2019. I don't think taqlid would make sense in 2019. I don't think all these things that are right now wajib on me would be there in 2019. So I'm stuck with a sharia that really was made for a jahil era of 1400 years ago in 2019. Those are dangerous conversations. You're taking the, the, the face of the deen now and you're completely flipping it. And so naturally you have this resentment for, towards the deen. That you're asking me now to follow some random manja in the east, in Najaf and Qum, again like I said before, who has no idea what my pains are, or you want me to cover myself from head to toe, even though I can attain modesty by still letting my hair flow out. So what do we do? We take the deen, we try to fit it inside 2019. Right? Somehow just stick it in there so it fits. And let me remind all of you, remind myself and remind my youth out there, the deen never came down to try to fit in some era or some nation. The deen was meant to always be up here. It's us that needs to come and transform up to the deen. There's a big difference. Don't bring the deen down, water it, configure it, form it, change it to somehow fit 2019. That's not what the deen is. I don't want a deen that constantly is moving and changing to fit those people. I want a deen that has universal principles that are remaining top here and you and I, and I have to make our way, our elevation up to that deen. Other major religions have done that today already and we see their halat and state. They've taken the words of Allah and they've changed it. They've taken the, their, their, their deen and their principles and their ahkam and they've changed it just to kind of fit the Western mold or today's mold of the deen, just so they can attract more followers. We want the followers, but we want the followers of the right deen, not of a watered-down deen, or a deen that fits our limited lifestyle today. The deen has always been about elevation. It's always been about a challenge. I'm asking you, all of you, to live a life that is, you know, what I've been presenting for the past eight nights, and it is a challenge. 
It's not easy what I'm asking all of you to do. I get that. I'm not naive up here. But it is a challenge. I'm asking you guys to accept that challenge. Take it on. Fight the demons inside of you. Fight the demons outside of you and tread the path, if not for anything else, such that our Imam can say, yes, this individual right here, this Ali Muhammad Hassan Hussain Zainab Sakina Fatima, she's fighting the fight for me. And that goes a long way. So when we hear in Dua Ahad, for example, that if death was to fall upon me before the arrival of the, ma of, of the Imam, فَأَخْرِجْنِي مِنْ قَبْرِي Take me out from the grave. Those are those people in the grave who took on this challenge. But their life wasn't long enough to witness the zuhur of the Imam. But even if the Imam comes and they're in the grave, if they left this world with the right mindset, they'll be taken out of the grave and be able to serve the Imam of their time. I caution all of you, I caution myself and my own family and my own kids that we are treading dangerous waters today, attempting to somehow make the deen fit. Don't make the deen fit inside of you, you fit inside the deen. The deen is not something that was only made for one era and one nation and one tribe. It's based on universal, harmonious beliefs that make our life complete. As I said last night, it's not a deen of the mountaintops and the basements and the caves. It's not the deen of isolation. I asked about detachment last night, but I also said the tough balance is to detach yourself from the world while living in that world. That's kamal. That's perfection. And that's difficult. But the striving and the struggling that Allah sees, you will be rewarded for that. Sallu ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad. You know, it's a point I've made everywhere I go. Anywhere I go, I make the exact same point. I'll make it right here in Dar es Salaam. And that is that sometimes we look at Islam through a result-driven lens, not a, um, not a, a struggle-driven lens or a process-driven lens. What I mean by that is this. The example I often give is a mountaintop, a mountain, okay? You ask today's youth and you ask today's elders, okay? To start off at the base of the mountain and together now, Climb the mountain. What's the difference? The difference is that that youngster, today's millennial, today's 18, 19, 25 year old, his first glance or her first glance will be where? The top of the mountain. The summit. That's where big impact happens, right? That's where, you know, I'll take my sick selfie, the top of the mountain. And the first glance of my elder generation is nothing to do with the top of the mountain. It's to do where is my first step on the mountain. There's a big difference there. My elders, God bless them, and I wish I had more time to discuss them. But what they've done and how they take their life, if you ask me, is the idea that they've taken their life as a climb. Doesn't matter how far up the mountain you get. Whereas our youth today take it as the maximum impact portion. They look at the summit, they think, you know, how do I get to that summit? And they're glanced and they're obsessed and they're mesmerized with the summit of the mountain, the top of the mountain. And in the process, they forget what? There's a mountain to climb, Baba. Don't ignore the climb for the summit. 
Don't ignore the result or the process for the result. Whereas my elders said, look, if we get there, we don't get there, it's okay. But we cannot stop climbing. So they were able to achieve things in their life of 65, 55, 60 years that I'm sorry, in my generation could never dream of achieving. You should listen to the stories of these elders. May God bless them, what they've done for us in our communities. They've traveled here and here and here. They went all over the world and everywhere they went, they did their best to establish some sort of a place of worship. Not for them, but for their kids. Sometimes across that ocean, across this, this ocean, south, north, learn the culture, learn the language, find a job, do everything, and somehow establish an Imam Barga, a Masjid, a Hussainiyah, an Abad al-Ghaz, something to uphold that religion. People like me and my generation, we won't move to another city in the same country sometimes. Forget across the world. Because they've embraced the struggle, we're looking for results. And sometimes, and I'm telling you, the deen is not results driven. The deen is process driven. The faster we accept that, the faster we'll be content. Because after a while, my you sit there and say, you know what, I can't do it. I can't do it. It's too hard. I don't want to be the flag bearer of Islam on social media. I don't want to be the ambassador running around in the supermarkets and in the malls. I don't want to do that. I can't do that. It's too much for me. So they'll run or they'll hide or they'll mingle or they'll somehow mend and blend into society. They don't want to be that red t-shirt in a room full of white t-shirts. No way. I can't do it. That's not who I am. And we'll understand as we get later on in, the, in this discussion, that's precisely what we have to be in this morally bankrupt society that we live in. Globally morally bankrupt is to be that red t-shirt. It's a challenge that I present in front of all of you and myself. But do with the hopes that what? I, can, I, I, am, I am struggling up the mountain and God sees my climb. And God will reward me accordingly. Sallu ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad. Now, understanding that. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to uh, prepare ourselves for what? For life under the Imam. Not just his arrival. That moment that he comes. I can't wait, I can't wait. Neither can I. But there's a life afterwards. There's a wilayat and government led by him afterwards. And we know enough to know that that government will do what? Will create social justice. Which right now the world is craving. From the west to the east to the north to the south. Anywhere you see issues happening, it's all about the lack of social justice. You know, the Arab Spring, or occupying Wall Street, or this idea of these resistance movements up and down the Middle East, it's all about what? It's all about social justice. People who are fighting the fight, people who are in prison today, like Sheikh Zakzaki, for example, all of them are being imprisoned and tortured because they're the voice of social justice. And there are people who don't want that agenda to be met. When the Imam comes, he will be the flag bearer of social justice. All the traditions that you have seen about what he's going to establish, nowhere do you see the word Islam. Everywhere you see the world, adalat and justice and adal and insaf and fairness. Because that's the, that's, the that's the one ingredient that every human being can actually come and stand under that one unifying platform. So we are, we are preparing ourselves 
for a life under a government of social justice, which we have yet to see today. This adalat iqtisadi, as they call it, this economic justice, okay, where you will find it very difficult to find somebody who's poor, or a beggar, or a miskeen, where you find it difficult to give your sadqa money to those who are less fortunate, because there aren't any out there. And so naturally to establish that justice, those who are up here, who are over-consuming and over-possessing and have fallen prey to consumerism and capitalism and materialism have to now sacrifice their life to bring it at par with those who will now come up who are poor and less fortunate and low income to meet that needs. So there's an element of sacrifice involved for those who have consumed as they wanted and possessed as they wanted. Meaning what precisely the message of minimalism is to drop yourself to the level where now you're at a level or par with this idea of a social justice movement. That's why I've been harping on all of us to live that life of a minimalist. A minimalist. Because a life of minimalism is one of the sure ways to prepare ourselves for Imam and Zamana. A lot of you ask me, what can we do? What can we do? Yes, there's du'as. Yes, no doubts. Every Tuesday mornings, etc., etc. Do I ahad? Do I faraj? No doubt. Those are all there. Salat Imam and Zamana is there. But it, can, it, it sometimes requires a complete overhaul of our life to adopt this idea of sustainable consumption and conscious consumption and living a life of sadiqi and contentment. Not, you know, chasing, not keeping up with the Joneses, not trying to live a life that we really have no business living. That's actually adding to the injustice that we have today. I talked about that in individualism. Because when you look at the Quran, that talks about the deprivation of resources to a nation. Surah Al-Araf verse 96, very beautiful verse. One of those relevant verses that could have been revealed to us today. Talks about the state of those towns that have been deprived barakat and blessings from the sky and from the earth. It says what? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. وَلَوْ أَنَّ الْأَحْلَ الْقُرَىٰ آمَنُوا وَاتَّقَوْا لَفَتَحْنَا عَلَيْهِمْ بَرَكَاتٍ مِنَ السَّمَاءِ وَالْأَرْضِ Beautiful verse. Had the people of the towns, the Ahl Qura, the people of the cities and the villages, had they held on to Amanu wa Taqaw, to faith and God consciousness, Allah says, We would have lafatahana alayhim barakatin min as wal arv. We would have opened the sky and opened the ground and poured onto them blessings, barakat. Now in this verse, it's obvious, the blessings from the sky is rain, the blessing from the ground are crops and vegetation. Because when you examine some of the traditions that talk about the state of life before the arrival of the Imam, there's some scary stuff out there. Eye-opening stuff that we literally see today being prophesized. For example, the Prophet says that before the arrival of the Mahdi, Rain will either not appear or not happen, or rain will happen at odd times. This universe has precision behind it. 
This universe was created with the utmost perfection to the point where the seasons in certain parts of the world were also placed with precisions. It would rain when it had to rain. It would stop raining when it had to stop raining. But because you and I have destroyed this planet in the wake of you know, um, global warming and climate change, now sometimes it rains to the point where floods and tsunami happens, and sometimes it doesn't rain to the point where drought and famine and death happens. That's all based on the verse I'm reading for you every single night. ظَهَرَ الْفَصَادُ فِي الْبَرْنِ وَالْبَحْرِ بِمَا كَسَبَتْ That corruption in the land and the sea is not corruption of terrorism or violence or, or, or injustice only. It's also on, in terms of economics and in terms of also the environment as well. How بِمَا كَسَبَتْ We did it. We've done it ourselves with overconsumption. Not thinking about how to consume or how to possess. Allah says, well, you know, I'm going to show you a little bit of a taste of what you've done. I'm going to show you. And we're seeing it today. So you may what? You may come back to me. That's been the base verse I've read every night in the khutbah for you. It fits in this discussion perfectly. After a while, the ground will stop giving that barakat. The, the, the sky will stop bringing that barakat. Because those people have left, Amanu wa the Quran says. They've left the path of the deen. They've gone after their own nafs and their own khayshat, their own desires. They've made the individual now God, as I mentioned a few nights ago. When that happens, there's repercussions to that. One of them is that you're denied environmental blessings. Not only that, we have this idea of the economy today. Many of you are economists in this, in, in, in this crowd. And we look at the idea of inflation and salaries and wages and jobs and the job market, etc., etc. Again, the dean talks about that before the arrival of the imam. Somebody asked Imam Jafar Sadiq, alayhi salatu wasalam. When the Imam said that before the arrival of the Mahdi, Allah will send signs to the believers. And Muhammad ibn Muslim, who was the Sahabi who asked this question, he says to Imam Sadiq that what are those signs that you are referring to? And he quoted the very famous verse from Surah Baqarah 155. That says, وَلَنَبْلُوَنَّكُمْ بِشَيْءٍ مِنَ الْخَوْفِ وَلَجُّعُ وَنَقْسٍ مِنَ الْأَمْوَالِ وَأَنْفُسِ وَالثَّمَرَاتِ وَبَشْرَ الصَّابِرِينَ Very famous verse that sometimes actually is used to describe, describe the imtahan and test of Imam Hussein, ironically. But in this context, in the economic downfall that we feel today, it actually comes from this discussion many, many, many years ago by our sixth Imam. When he described this idea, Allah will test you and test the believers with khawf, fear, jew, hunger, naqsin min, min al-amwal, loss of property, loss of wealth, wa anfusi, loss of lives, wa thamarat, loss of fruits. And he sends good news to those who are the patient ones. He describes now Imam Sadiq to Ibn Muslim that this is what Allah means. First of all, min khawf, meaning what? That he will test you with fear when you are under the rule 
of what? Of oppressive governments. And regimes that are just after tyranny and oppression and, and, and injustice. We're seeing that today. We're seeing that khawf today. And we're seeing the results of some Muslim countries today. A little bit of a threat from the Western powers. And they say, ji hazur, ji hazur, ji hazur. They accept funding and they sell out their souls and do everything. They sit in the lap of the enemy. As that same enemy is destroying the Muslim world. But the idea that, look, I don't want to empty, I, I, I don't want to upset him. Minju, he says, what about hunger? He says, hunger is represented by inflation inside today's society. These crippling sanctions on Iran right now that has really had made life very difficult for the locals there, part of that is that inflation is skyrocketing. They can't afford the basic necessities. It's a test for them. The life that we live in the West sometimes is a very expensive life. In Dubai is a very expensive life. In Europe is a very, is a very expensive life. To uphold sometimes the luxuries is very difficult. It's a test for us. You can now go outside your capacity and begin to charge this credit card and that credit card and drown yourself in debt to attain that luxury or you can live within your means as I've been trying to explain to all of you. It's a test though. And loss of wealth, loss of power. Here the Imam says these are wages that are dropping in this society. This is income that is not sustainable. So yes, you have an income, you have a nine to five job, but you need, you need one or two side businesses just to maintain your monthly expenses. It's a test. And the loss of lives. And we see that today, innocent lives being killed for no apparent reason. The biggest issue we have in America right now are these mass shootings, walking into schools, opening fire on small kids for no apparent reason. You send your eight-year-old to school, you get a call to come and collect the body of your eight-year-old. It's devastating for no apparent reason. The people in Yemen, the people in Bahrain, the people in Palestine, the people in Karachi, the people in, in everywhere, you see innocent lives for no apparent reason being killed. It's a test for those individuals and their families. And then minal thamarat, the fruits, meaning what? Agriculture, the land, crops. Ask some of the farmers in the world how much they're suffering. Sometimes in India we see, in Pakistan we see, they depend heavily on rain. Rain hasn't come in months, Malana. Because we're right now in global warming and climate change. All of this that is in front of us, the Imam has laid out perfectly and we're living it today. And then he says, وَبَشِّرَ sabirin." And the good news is that you will be beside the Imam, uh, Imam of your time with patience because you have endured all these difficult stages of life. And all of this, I'm sorry, is all caused by us, the insan. From our own hands, we've done this. We're the one killing innocent lives. We're the one that are, you know, I mean, if we have a problem, right? When you have kids in the West, in America and Canada, the biggest issue we have with children right now is children's obesity in the West. Taking food out of their mouth. You fly across the ocean in a continent like Africa, the same eight-year-old, the issue is not obesity here, it's malnutrition. If we're trying to take food out of the mouth of an eight-year-old there, we're trying to put food in the mouth of an eight-year-old here. 
when 2%, 3% of the entire world's population own 65 to 70% of the world's resources, that's a problem. That's imbalance. That's injustice. That's all done not by Allah. Let's stop blaming Him. That's all done with our hands, our greed, our individualism. And we're seeing the taste of it, and everyone's being affected right now. All of this is why I have been talking about minimalism to somehow get us to a certain area, a balance of a life where now we can somehow mirror and prepare ourselves for the arrival of the Imam who will come and fix all of this. I mean, you, you, you listen to the, to, to the traditions. I'll give you two of them that really affect me. Number one, it's not my topic, but just as, you know, as an eye-opener for all of you. The Prophet says that morality, akhlaq, basic humanity will drop to the level before the arrival of the Imam to the point where men will complete will compete with other men in vicious acts that you committed this act I'll show you something that's even more vicious women will compete with other women in heinous crimes they'll compete to see who's more vicious The Prophet sitting around with his companions, a very famous tradition now, with his companions now. He describes a moment where he says, your women and your children and you, your men, will commit transgression against God. They were shocked. They couldn't believe it. Are you sure, Ya Rasulullah? Yes, that day will come. And then he says, there'll come a time where what was once considered to be vicious has become virtuous and virtuous to become vicious. Ma'aruf becomes munkar, munkar becomes ma'aruf. And they were shocked. They couldn't believe it. How is that possible? Are we not living in that era today? Things that were blasphemous, unheard of 10 years ago, forget. There's kulli'am today, very common today. To the point where if you don't do it, you're strange, you're odd, you're weird. Bro, are you okay? That, and that's where... You know, some say we're moving, some say we've already become. And then we hear about one hadith, a glimpse of the life after the Imam will come. He'll establish that adat iqtisadi, that social justice. One hadith says it will be such a beautiful environment to the point where if one brother, and brother in faith, not your blood brother, one brother in faith needs something, and he knows that what he needs is inside of your pockets. There'll be such a harmony and brotherhood, without asking you, he'll go into your pocket, he'll grab what he needs, and he'll move on his way. He'll be fulfilled, and you'll also be fulfilled. Try that now. See what happens. With your blood brother, try that now, see what happens. So we live in dangerous times. I don't mean to be doom and gloom and Mr. And, 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 and Mr. Depressing. I don't. But it is eye-opening. Like why is this guy talking about minimalism? Because this is the reason we read these hadiths and they're scary for me. This is where things are going, where things are already at. We can go along with the tide and be in for a big shock when the imam comes. Or we can go against the tide and be that red shirt and say, look, I'm preparing for my hujjat. I know that he's going to come and rescue me from all of this right now. Yes, it's very, very difficult, but embrace the climb, embrace the challenge. 
Allah says one step, you know one step to me, ten towards you, inshallah. Sallu ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad. Because we need to be the ambassadors of this movement. And I'm sorry, I know that my youth don't like that word sometimes, but that's the reality. If you've been given that tawfiq to believe, the reality is every major and minor religion believe in the idea that the world cannot end like this. It's impossible the world will end like this. They all are waiting for some savior to come. Even those who have no base of a deen, logically, they're waiting for somebody. The major Abrahamic religions, Islam, Christian Judaism, they're all waiting for somebody to come. We believe, we have yaqeen, we have certainty that who we're waiting to come, we know him very well. We know 11 of his generations. We know what his father and his grandfather and his forefathers were like. We know what family he comes from. We know what message he's, he, 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 he'll deliver. We know what path he's going to pave. All of that is already known to us. There's no surprises. It's a matter now of us paving that path, not only for us, but for everybody else. When the Imam comes, I'm sorry, the first thing won't be bloodshed, like I mentioned last night or, or, or two nights ago. It'll mirror that of the Holy Prophet. I want my youth to understand this. When someone like me says, prepare the grounds for Imam Zamana, I don't mean to prepare yourself for a bloodbath. What I mean by that is that you look at the Prophet of Allah's mission very, very quickly. The very first war between him and the Kuffar didn't happen till Medina, correct? 13, 14 years into his mission. Before that, he had an army, he had an ummah, he had already made that migration. He set up shop in Medina, which means what? What attracted them to the Holy Prophet was the fact that they were living in utter darkness. Dalalim mubin, utter darkness. And he was that light, and they would gravitate towards that light. He would speak to their hearts, he would present them solutions, he would give them hope. And many of the ulama have said that, you know, this society today will lower itself all the way down to mirror that of Jahiliya of the Holy Prophet. Are we not there already, if not getting there right now? Let's be very careful. If that's the case, then what is our job? Our job is to be that one glimmer of hope for everybody else. It's a lot to handle, I understand. At least start with your own family, your own selves. Don't fall into the, uh, the, the abyss of hopelessness. Look, the example I give to shut off every single light in this room. Shut it all off to the point you can't see your hand in front of your face. That's how dark this room will be. And I now grab a candle. This big of a candle. And I light that wick. The flame is this big. But every single one of you from all the way in the back wall to him beside me will all what? Stare at that one wick. And wherever that wick goes, you will follow accordingly. Why can't we be today's wick? It sounds mushy, I know, but that's the reality of it. There are people who are drowning right now in the abyss of their own darkness. Sometimes a person right beside you. Arrival, you know, preparing ourselves for the arrival of, of the Imam is this as well. Not only is it a conscious lifestyle, it's also pulling somebody beside you as well. Let's try to understand that. They're devastating traditions. One tradition says, the Prophet says that before the arrival of the Imam, the situation economically would be so low, so low, consumerism will kill the masses to the point where a father 
will present his daughter and say, anybody want to buy my daughter for a morsel of food? It's not happening now. There's documentaries on slavery in India. Is this, are these far-fetched concepts? They were a century ago, now not so much. We can literally see the prophecy of all of these traditions happening in front of us. We sit there and we do nothing. No, this is, these are wake-up days. And this is the time now, these 10 days. You have three days left. I have three days left. Wednesday is my last speech. Thank God for all of you. It's my last speech on Wednesday. Then you're free of me. At that moment then, let's stop and think for a moment. My heart is ready right now. You're here now to cry, cry for Abul Fazl Abbas. Abul Fazl Abbas's prime message is that when, you know, I could have gotten water for everybody in my tent. I could have conquered the enemy by myself. But I followed whatever the deen wanted me to do at that moment. Prime message on this night. That when I'm faced with one path, I take the path that the deen wants. This was a man who was a giant of a man. My youth understand this. 33, 34 the day of Ashura. That's the old of his Javani, right? That's the extreme of his Javani. He was chosen by Mullah Ali for this day of Ashura. Trained by Amir al-Mu'maneen. And yes, those reports that we hear about his height to the point where horses would go under him are not fabricated. The way that the books describe this man, he was a warrior. Why else do you think that he was able to get to the banks of Furat? How could one man get to the banks of Furat? You know, those of you who have been to Karbala, you know that when you get to it a bit close to Furat, there's a downhill to Furat. He was able to get to the banks because nobody wanted to touch Abu Fazl al-Abbas. But the thought of getting water back to the tent of Hussein, that's what forced them to now do what they did to this man. Abu Fazl approaches Imam Hussein. Says, Mola, give me ijazat now. And every time he would ask for permission to go and, and, and defend the deen, Imam Hussein would say, Abbas, you're my alamdar. Abbas, you're the commander of my army. You're my sardar. You're everything. You're my leader. You're my commander. How can I let you go? He'd go back. Mola Ijazat, you're my alamdar. Mola Ijazat, you're my alamdar. When one by one they would all give their life, there came a moment where Abu Fas says, Mola, now give me Ijazat. Abbas, you're my alamdar. Abu Fazl will say, Mola, there's no army left for me to be the alamdar. The sounds of Al-Atash, Al-Atash could be heard. Small children crying for thirst, crying for water. In that was his beloved Sakina. Beloved Sakina. Wherever you see the alam of Abu Fazl Abbas, you see a tiny mushk attached to it, a water sack attached to it. To represent that wherever Abbas went, Sakina went with him. He finally says to Imam Hussein, Mullah, fine, don't give me permission for anything else. Let me go and silence the children and get some water at least. Let me go and try to get some water. 
how difficult it is? The moment that your young child is saying that, Baba, Mama, I'm thirsty, you'll drop everything and get water for them, will you not? If they say it one time, two times, if they end up crying for water, why are you crying? I'm so thirsty, Baba. Doesn't matter what you'll do, you'll run and get a glass of water. Hussein is hearing, Al-Atash, Al-Atash. He says, Abbas, go. Go get some water. Abbas now roars into the Maidan of Karbala. And one hand is the alam, and one hand is the musk. That water sack he's going to fill with water. And as I said, like a sea parting, the army parted. They didn't want anything to do with this man. And yes, the reports say he got to the banks of Farat. And he filled that water sack. There's a very beautiful image sometimes in the bazaar inside Qum that I saw with my own eyes on these big carpets of a man who's supposed to be depicted of Abu al-Fazl standing there at the banks of Farat with his arm, with his hands out and there being some water inside the palms of his hand. I don't know how much that's true, but had anybody ever reported that he, he, he took a little bit of water and drank for himself, nobody would blame him. Nobody would say, how could you, how dare you? Why do we say the wafadari of Abu al-Fazl Abbas is unlike any other? Why do we talk about the loyalty of Abbas at that moment where water was staring him in the face? My heart tells me he saw the water, but what he saw in the reflection of that water were the parched lips of Imam Hussein. He could hear al-Atash of Sakina inside of his ears. How do you expect the boss to drink a drop of water? He filled the Sakina, he filled the, the, the mush, didn't have a single drop of water, roared back into the Maidan of Karbala. Now Umar ibn Sa'd says, this man has water, and I cannot let a drop of water get to the Khaimah and the tent of Imam Hussein. And they begin now to surround this man and attack this man. This was the son of Hadar Karar, a man who fought in Safin beside his father. He knew what he was doing in the Maidan of Karbala. Rows and rows and rows of men he would drop. Still, that mushk and that alam in his hand, he would fight them off one by one. And the only way that you could kill a man like that is not face to face, but either behind his back or ambush him from somewhere else. That's precisely what happened as he made his way to get back to the Khaimah. His only thing, his only thing was get water to Hussein, get water to Sakina, get water to the tent. Imagine now in the tents that someone is telling Sakina that Ammu Abbas has gone for water. She now begins to possibly, maybe, I haven't read this, get the small kids ready that come. My Chacha Abbas is going for water. My Chacha Abbas is going for water. I know he'll bring water. Bring your small cups, line up. There's water going to be coming. Don't worry. You'll be quenched very, very quickly. Abbas is roaring back to the Khaimah. Somehow get the water back to the Khaimah. But this Mal'oon from the ambush comes and chops off the right arm of Abu Fazl Abbas. Abbas grabs the alam, grabs the mask in the left arm. Another Mal'oon comes, chops off the left arm. The alam is between his legs, the mask in his mouth. Now Umar bin Saad says, Hormala! Shower the man with arrows. 
A rain of arrows comes towards Abu Fazl. One hits him in the chest, he, where he takes it out. One hits him in the leg, he takes him out. One hits him right where it hurt the most. The one arrow that completely destroyed the man. It had nothing to do with his body. One arrow hits the mask of Sakina. Water begins flowing out. Now Abu Fazl Abbas stops where he is. What does he do? He doesn't have water for the kids. Doesn't have arms to defend himself. What does he do? The bravery. Hazar salams to you, Abu Fazl Abbas. He turned his horse around and went back in the Medan of Karbala. I'm not going back to the Khaimah without tents. How he fought, God knows. But there came a moment where one arrow hit him right in the eye. And Abbas begins to fall on the Zameen of Karbala. Alama Majlisi narrates that one night I read the Masaib of Abu Fazl Abbas. Us. That night, Shahzadi Fatima the Zahra came inside my dream. Majlisi, you've read the Masab of my Abbas, but not the Musibat. Shahzadi, I read whatever I knew. She says, No, you tell whoever's listening to the Masab of my Abbas that when somebody falls from a horse, they use their arms to break their fall. My Abbas didn't have arms. He fell on that arrow inside his arm, his eye. Assalamu alaikum. Ya Abba Abdullah. Imam Hussein goes roaring towards Abu Fazl Abbas. Places the head of Abbas on his lap. Mala, there's an arrow in one eye. There's dirt in the other. Clean my eyes, Mala. I just want to see you. This moment between one brother to another is devastating. Abu Fazl Abbas says to Imam Hussein, Mala, if I've let you down, I'm sorry. One last zahmat, one last favor. Leave my body right here in the Maidan of Karbala. Don't bring it back to the Khaimah. Imam Hussein leaves Azad Abbas's body on the plains of Karbala, goes back to the Khaimah. Bibi Sakina comes running out. She sees the alam. She doesn't see the alamdar. It's almost as if I could tell her that Bibi Sakina will go running out. Say, Chacha Abbas, your Sakina is not thirsty anymore. Matim Hussain. 